Then the next stage was, well, would this work on a location? Could we open a shop? And we were very clear at the beginning that it would have to do something more than we could already do online and with our subscription business. And probably the biggest one of all was immediate gratification. And when you're selling kind of the edible version of crack cocaine, when you want it, you want it now. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Today on the topic of chocolate, you're in for a real treat. We're having a conversation with Angus Thurwell, co-founder and CEO of Hotel Chocolat. It's a brand that forged a unique space for itself in the high street retail chocolate market. Today, the brand boasts over 100 retail stores, both in the UK and abroad, plus a phenomenal e-commerce business as well. We featured Angus in December's pre-Christmas episode, Unwrapping the Chocolate Industry. Angus is a master brand builder and a pioneering figure in the world of chocolate. During that interview, he served up so many delicious morsels of wisdom that we felt the interview justified a whole episode in itself. Angus tells us how he came up with the brand name Hotel Chocolat. He shares the secrets that have helped scale his business, and he opens the lid on the chocolate industry's hot-button issues. The parallels between coffee and chocolate are highly relevant and innumerable. So grab yourself a coffee or hot chocolate and sit back and enjoy this conversation with Angus Thurwell. Welcome, Angus. Jeffrey, thanks for inviting me on. Angus, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into chocolate. Chocolate is one of those things that just sucks you right in. Once you get involved, even peripherally with it, it is such an absorbing subject matter. You can't help but get just completely taken over by it. And that's pretty much what happened to me and my business partner, Peter. In the very early days, we were peppermint guys, having been computer guys. And the peppermint business was a very, very niche concept, pure B2B as a promotional idea. And our customers kept asking if we had anything else apart from peppermints, having reordered mints maybe two or three times. And we realized that we'd have to start investigating chocolate. So admittedly, we started reluctantly to look into it. But such is the seductive power of chocolate that, you know, after literally months, we realized that when you say the word chocolate to virtually everybody, you know, their eyes widen, they, their pulse beats a bit faster. And we were the only people on the planet who were previously more interested in peppermints. Wow, peppermints to chocolate. So it wasn't any childhood dream to, oh, I'd, I'd love to create a chocolate company or anything. It was literally an idea that came out of a, a B2B business, really. Yeah, that, that's right. It came, I suppose, in a business development way, which is not very romantic, I know. And I'd love to be able to say that when I was born, the first thing I thought about was chocolate. But it doesn't really matter how inspiration comes. You've got to just realize it's there. And what has happened is that as we've developed Hota Chocolat, it's connected the dots from different parts of my life. So, for example, the name Hota Chocolat, the chocolat element drew on the time that I lived in France when I was university age young lad. And the time that I grew up living in Barbados imbued in me a real love of the Caribbean. And that meant that when we were looking to buy our own cacao farm, the first place to look was the Caribbean, where some of the world's best cacao grows. And when we flew into St. Lucia to look at this 
beautiful Rabo estate, I immediately felt at home and it wasn't as scary as it might have been. So I probably stumbled into it. But what I found is that there's been the most amazing serendipity in the journey that is drawn on different knowledge pockets or experience pockets that I've built up in my brain and my heart that have played a huge part. Wow. In your peppermint business, you started selling chocolate. When was the actual brand of Hotel Chocolate born? Or was, was there another name before that? How did it all come about? Yeah, we've always been a very evolutionary business and we intend to stay like that. I mean, that sense of perpetual improvement and progression is hardwired into the business and I intend to keep it like that. When we were building a business up, we went from being B2B into our first consumer-facing idea, which was fast-delivered chocolates through the letterbox. And it was primarily direct response, advertising in newspapers, and this very early thing, bearing in mind we're in the late 1990s here, called the internet. We managed to make it work to a degree. It was really hard, but the business was called Choc Express at that point fast delivered chocolates. And primarily, we're trying to get across the idea that we had a service, which was way better than flowers, in our opinion. You know, you could send them to a family, and it wasn't a female slanted gift in the way that flowers are. And you could also have a wider variety of sizes and price points, apart from it being, again, in our opinion, way more exciting. Mm. So that was our essential proposition. And we, we then added to that a subscription idea, which was called the Chocolate Tasting Club. And the idea there was that we would send our members a different selection of chocolates every month. The price would always be the same. The essential format would always be the same, but the chocolates would be different. And we would ask the club members to score every recipe and we would publish the results within the Chocolate Tasting Club. So again, this was early 2000s. And then by the time we got around to 2005, probably, you know, it was clear that although we had good business models, we didn't have a great brand. And I started thinking about how we were going to achieve our next series of ambitions. And, and so the opportunity to think of a new brand name started. And that's where I had to sort of dig into, well, what is it that we want to say? What is it about our chocolate? And I kept coming back to escapism. It's the ability that great chocolate has to take you out of yourself and create a special time, a special few moments. And that was what I was trying to encapsulate in the new brand name. And so and I knew for a fact I definitely wanted chocolat in it somewhere because from living in France, I'd heard French women in particular say chocolat, you know, it was sort of lodged in my memory in perpetuity. There's something about the kind of seductive sound of that. It's just like melting chocolate. Whereas the Anglo-Saxon chocolate is like a snap. And if you have to weigh up people more interested in the snap or the melt, it's definitely the melt. Yeah. And so I was searching for something to go with chocolate and I came across the word hotel and I thought, hmm, stuff goes on in hotels, a mystique, escapism. You're kind of anonymous. It's slightly naughty. All those things. So putting the two together, after I'd repeated it to myself in a mirror about a thousand times, the two words became one. And I thought, okay, we could probably make this into a brand name. Wow. Yeah, that's absolute genius, really. And I think escapism is definitely a kind of a big part of what coffee represents as well. I wonder if you could just tell us what were the absolute pivotal moments in Hotel Chocolat's timing? Was there any big moment 
that really stood out for how your business went up 10 notches? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had big points of inflection. One of them, for sure, is making a physical space begin to work. Knowing that we started as an online business effectively and then brought in subscription, when the Hütte Schokolade name settled on us and we thought, yeah, this is definitely what we're going to do, first job is to convince our existing customer base to stay with us as we rebrand. Then the next stage was, well, would this work on a location? Could we open a shop? And we were very clear at the beginning that it would have to do something more than we could already do online and with our subscription business. And the column of what it could add more as a format was education, experience, tasting, and probably the biggest one of all was immediate gratification compared to our other models, which only offered deferred gratification. And when you're selling kind of the edible version of crack cocaine, when you want it, you want it now. And so we realized that we'd built a business from the other end of the telescope where we were going against visceral grain of what really most people thought about chocolate. When they decide they want it, they want it now. So we created a more impulse range to go with our already evolved gift range of propositions and created a chocolate space. And it was a really exciting project to design and work on and find a team and train them up about the knowledge and the confidence to be able to talk to our hopefully new customers about the recipes we're working on and, by the way, have a little taste. And we opened the first one in Watford, chosen because it was just a slice of the UK. You know, we didn't want to start in Cambridge, where in our local city, people might feel a bit sorry for us. And that could be the reason why it might work by accident. We wanted to know for sure, can we make this work in somewhere that is typical of many locations up and down the UK? So that was a really big turning point. And we gradually made that work better and better and had a great decade, 15 years of really driving the business prominence and the new customer activities by just opening our doors and welcoming people in. And the way that that interacts with an online business is definitely one plus one equals five. So that first physical space, was that 2005 or? It's a bit later. We started thinking about the brand in 2005 and eventually opened a Hütte Schokolade location in about 2008. And that first store in Watford, that was in a shopping center, was it? Or is it a high street? Shopping center. Shopping center, yeah. And then how long did it take until the next store opened? We opened the next one in Milton Keynes and that was the following year. And then we went on a more active program after that. Wow. So in terms of funding the business and creating that runway for the business to get the amazing scale that you've achieved over the last decade, I believe you launched a set of chocolate bonds. I wonder if you could tell us about that and how that worked. The risk that we were facing was we had a perfect storm of funding requirements. We had decided to buy this cacao farm in St. Lucia. We wanted to scale up our chocolate making factory in Huntingdon. And we also wanted to open 10 new Hütte Chocolat locations a year. And wrapping all that up in one year was sort of like, eek, how are we going to be able to fund this? Up to date, we've been plowing the profits back into the business. We haven't really taken much money out ourselves or anything. But this is three big projects all at the same time. And overcoming that challenge of, first of all, how do you fund it? And then secondly, how do you get all three to work? Because business wisdom would be, you're doing too much. You should wind your necks in a bit, guys. This is trying to do all that at the same time. You're going to explode or drop the ball on at least two of them. It was 
something we had to face into and we decided to go for it and do it. And the Chocolate Bonds was an idea where knowing that we had great customers who had often written to me saying, oh, anytime that we can get more involved in the business, count us in and that type of thing, just made us think, well, we'd rather be giving the interest to our lovely customers than to a bank. And this was, although we have a great relationship with our bank who are probably listening and ought to make that point. Um, This was post-2008 when banks as a banking sector hadn't exactly covered themselves in glory. And so the idea of doing a chocolate bond came about where we would effectively ask our customers to loan us two or four thousand pounds. And while we were using that money to help those projects and develop, we would pay interest in chocolate and we would then repay the money in full at a later date. So it's classic bond construction, but the interest is paid in chocolate. And put this idea out there and it got an embarrassingly large amount of PR, I think on the basis that everybody was expecting it to fall flat in its face. And then we raised three and a half million pounds. And then we got another huge slug of PR, which definitely helped profile the brand as being go ahead and innovative, which was just great. And then we went back and and did it again a couple of years later and raised the same amount again. So we'd raised seven million pounds, which we were very conscious we'd have to repay at some point. So we really had to make that money work. And it was great to write out all the checks about 18 months ago, two years ago, and pay everybody back. So yeah, that was a real point of, you know, our destiny. We could have taken an easier route of less risk, less challenge. But we decided to go for it. And that definitely set the tempo for what we wanted to do next. Wow, what a story. Chocolate bonds for someone with a finance degree and studied the financial markets. But I don't think there's any better bond in the history of finance of chocolate bonds, (laughs) but also genius for your business. Incredible. Angus, what would you say are the keys to your brand's success? Well, when we turned into being Hotel Chocolat rather than the previous brand names, we didn't really change our ethos, all we realized we would have to do is to articulate better what the culture was, what the brand mission was. Otherwise, it would just look like we just changed our name. We wanted to be much more purposed about our intent. And we wrote out the three key brand pillars, if you like. The first one is originality. We don't copy other people. We're not derivative. We're driven by creativity, and that's the way we try to run the business. So we have our own design team who are based in East London. There's like 14 of them in the team, and it's like our own design studio. So we're creating our own shapes of chocolate, our own graphic design, and things like the Velvetizer hot chocolate making machine, all the industrial design there. Having originality, trying to bring breath of fresh air and not copying the Swiss, the Belgians, or the French in the way they do chocolate, which is traditional and we respect it. But there was an opportunity to do things in a kind of more contemporary way and not be hidebound by tradition as much. So the second one is authenticity. And that's sort of in opposition to originality, that if you go too far on originality, you can be style over substance. And we very much wanted to be rooted in being the real deal in our sector. And that for us led to buying a cacao farm and getting soil under our fingernails, knowing how every single stage of going from a little cacao seed plant seedling 
to a delicious chocolate. What are the points of quality, fermentation, times and temperatures and drying and importance of cacao over sugar? All those came out of that drive to be the real deal, to be an authentic specialist. And then the third one is ethics, that while we go about developing the business, we want to be a good partner, a good brand, a good employer. And it's really important when you're effectively creating a happy food that there's no bad taste there. And for us, behaving ethically is inextricably linked with creating something delicious that makes people happy. Wow. Fascinating. Well, you've certainly achieved all that. What are also some of the operational secrets to scaling a brand while keeping the premium experience? I mean, is it just as simple as keeping to those pillars or are there other important things that you as a business person delivered that has kept the brand premium while being unique and but being absolutely massively scaled? Mm, I mean, the, the normal course of events is that as a business grows, it inevitably dilutes some of the quality and some of the approach, some of the intensity. That is the established view and wisdom out there that if you become bigger, you've in some way you've got to have sold out in some respects. And challenging that and saying, no, that's definitely not going to happen to us is at the, the center of avoiding that happening. And being determined to be better every year, to be always improving, to be progressive and to be reaching for higher standards means that if some dilution does happen in terms of you're just dealing with bigger teams and some of the intensity might wane a bit for a while until you correct it, all, all those type of things, by setting the standard higher that, no, we will be better every year, it means that even if you take three steps forward that way and you take one step back, you're still a net two steps forward. I think that's it. And it's harder and harder to keep that going. But the way that I found is to make sure that you bring amazing people into the business and then they hold the torch for that and, and actually, in many respects, better doing it. And that's our not so secret secret of how we're trying to maintain our standards while we also can grow and develop. Fantastic. Are there any things you do differently now? Any things that you wish you would had not done or had done earlier? Or some classic, we tried that and it just didn't work. And what was I thinking at the time kind of thing? It's always a difficult one to answer when you're a complete rank optimist, because when something doesn't work in the business, it doesn't work forever. It doesn't work yet. Depends over what time period you're going to be judging whether things have worked and to what degree. So we have a phrase in a business of it's on the subs bench. And that's for things that we like the look of. We might have tried it and it hasn't quite taken off in the way we wanted it to, but there's something about it that we're not going to give up on. We just park it on the subs bench and it's still going to be worked on at some point. And when the stars converge and everything's right, it could be worth doing. So that's the sort of non-binary approach to things that work and things don't work when you're an optimist. This is my own personal perspective on it. And my job in the business is to lead innovation broadly and make sure that we find the right ideas and for the right time. Things that we would have done differently, I think, probably our approach to growing internationally. We've had multiple attempts to, to really get going. And those have been in America where we've had a few goes in different ways. 
And it's working now in Japan and America. It's too early to completely call it, but we're definitely on a way better trajectory than we've ever been before in those two massive markets. Part of me thinks, well, could we ever have opened a plan up out of a box and got it exactly right and made it work like that straight away? Or do you, by necessity, have to have a few knockbacks and a few hard learnings to be able to figure it out for your own brand and your own sector and your own opportunities. And I'm probably thinking that you do. And we we network with lots of other consumer brands who we know, and they've all had similar experiences. It's very difficult to grow a brand internationally. And there's a certain amount of pain that has to be born to actually get the knowledge to be able to execute the opportunity in a really big way. So hard learning, is it understanding the culture? Is it being maybe investing more? What were those hard learnings of trying to expand internationally? I think the main one was in the people that we put into the markets. And what has really started to work for us is by bringing into the business very high caliber people. I mean, the very best that we can find around the world and people with an entrepreneurial edge to them as well. People who are not going to just do it the Hota Chocolat UK way, need to accept that for Hota Chocolat to succeed in somewhere like Japan, we do need to respect the local culture. We need to make some innovations that are drawn from Japanese ingredients, Japanese food rituals. And that's what we've been doing. And they're really, really working. And the team that we have in Japan and the USA are of the kind of very determined, very entrepreneurial mindset that they will find ways to make things work and overcome obstacles every time. They don't give up, they just keep going. The previous attempts we've had were very good people, very determined, very well-meaning, but just without that kind of entrepreneurial edge. And that comes with a little bit of, I suppose, risk that we're playing with the brand. We're prepared to evolve the brand and the product lineups to connect better with the market. And as long as it doesn't take us off-piste on our originality, authenticity, and ethics brand pillars, then I'm very happy for Hutta Chocolat to evolve. It always will evolve, but those pillars are everlasting. So this last year has been obviously a very different year. What has been the impact of COVID on your business? Well, we had the, in the UK anyway, the kind of perfect storm when it first hit because we had all our Easter eggs and Easter bunnies all made and all distributed out to our 125 UK locations. And then literally two and a half weeks out of Easter, we had to close all our locations. So faced with that, we did the most enormous chocolate version of Dunkirk, getting all our chocolate back to the center. And then our online side really stepped up hugely and we were able to navigate our way around that huge risk. And what we saw is that our customers switched to online buying rather than do without a Hota Chocolat Easter egg, which is just great to see. And what it showed us was the huge potential of investing more in the way we do our online offer. And we haven't gone off physical retail by any means. We really like our locations and we will keep um, investing and developing them because they bring something that a pure online dimension can't do. But what we did see is that 
agility and the ability to turn on a sixpence is in this kind of environment absolutely essential. So we've been building up our pick, pack and dispatch warehouse, double the size of it. We can now get our stock to do exactly what we wanted to do. So if we want our Easter eggs to be here, there or somewhere else, it's all much, much easier for us. So we've accelerated where we're going to go to anyway, but it's happened over seven, eight months rather than probably three to five years. Amazing. What a fabulous story. And the home market has just been phenomenal for the coffee industry as well. So on the topic of coffee, how does coffee relate to your business? Well, one of the things that a coffee um, expert said to me was that sort of masters of coffee know that a little bit of chocolate makes all coffee taste better. And that was really been ringing in my ears for a long time. And we love the two beans, the cacao bean and the coffee bean. And we very much see them as being symbiotic and that there's so many similarities between them. We also discovered that around our Rabo estate cacao farm, there's wild coffee growing. And so we've been taking a kind of renewed interest in what type of coffee will grow well in the solution elevation above sea level, the type of soil that we've got. And interplanted amongst our cacao. So we have a very coffee-centric team running our solution business. So we have the former head of Pret-a-Manger America and her husband now in, in St. Lucia running that business. So we've got the right soil, we've got the right, we think, coffee gene type, and we've got coffee-wired leadership there as well. So I think just watch this space on that one a bit. I mean, you created a set of cafes within your retail space as well. Was that something that was important to your business? Very much. And it comes back to what can a physical space do for Hütte Chocolat that we can't do online and with subscription? And the answer is all about amazing leisure experiences, which might be browsing wall of chocolate and picking out a blueberry truffle or a marzipan enrobed in dark chocolate and then just taking it home and eating it immediately or sitting on a park bench or something. But it can also mean pulling up a chair and asking to have a flat white with our own blend of coffee, which we've put a lot of effort into getting the taste exactly right. And we've been seeing a lot of success in that particular taste all the way from Tokyo, Osaka, New York, Glasgow, London, etc. We've got about 60 cafes that serve coffee. The combination of really good coffee with great training and paired with the right type of chocolate is, we think, an experience that sort of elevates it above everyday coffee. Yeah. What other parallels that you see just between the work your team is doing in coffee and, and you see in chocolate? What, what are the parallels that we could take away from a business perspective, perhaps, or the artistry? What, what are the parallels that you see between coffee and chocolate? Yeah, I mean, both markets are dominated by big multinational businesses. And some people listening might think that's also Hota Chocolat, but it's not really. We're still only a medium-sized business. And it's as much an expression of how you go about things as well as what your absolute size is. So when I'm talking about both coffee and chocolate industry being dominated by big multinationals, I mean, the guys have been around for a very long time and are mega in scale and are typically being run on a sheer profit maximization basis. And the original brand values in the vast majority of cases being diluted right down. 
And that's definitely the case for the bigger chocolate world, which is the one I sort of know more. I think that similarity of trying to be an insurgent in a market dominated by really big players means that you have to have something that is different, something that's better. And that comes down to the taste, the experience, and the way you go about achieving the taste and the experience. So the kind of ethics and the the training and the way you work with people. Plenty of opportunity in both markets for up-and-coming brands, I would say. And that's certainly been our experience, that you sort of make your own space. And so what do you think are the opportunities ahead for chocolate, for the industry? What are the themes that are really shaping the agenda of the chocolate industry? Well, what we're seeing is that there's growth in the premium chocolate sector, and the volume is going down almost for the first time in the cheap chocolate area. I think it's because, and this has happened in coffee as well, the, you know, the consumer has become much more educated and aware of the difference between honest, committed products and imitations of that. And in the chocolate world, we're keen that the word chocolate should be reserved for things that have cacao as the number one ingredient. And this can apply to white chocolate, creamy milk chocolate, as well as dark chocolate. It's not an elitist thing at all. And what is out there is that you can have a product that is less than 20% cacao, dominated hugely by sugar, that just happens to be brown and is called chocolate. And this is perpetuating the confusion that consumers have got between, on the one hand, a narrative saying eating chocolate can be good for you, can make you feel great. And then often the reality of, hang on a second, I bought this chocolate at a petrol station, I ate it and I, I didn't feel great. And in fact, I felt terrible and I can't believe it's good for me. And at the heart of the problem is this, the, the difference between a cacao-led product, which should earn the noble name chocolate, and a rule of thumb, which is very easy, is flip over the bar. And if cacao is the number one ingredient, it's going to taste great and make you feel great. And if sugar is the number one ingredient, you, know, you should really think again about, about the whole purchasing decision. Yeah. So, Angus, what can we expect to see from Hotel Chocolat in the near and perhaps distant future? I think you can expect to see faster innovation. Quite pleased with the innovation that we've brought to the market over the last decade, if you like. But we're intent on upping the pace of that. We have a lot of really good ideas and we've got the capability inside the business to make those happen. And we know that there's real excitement out in the market to generate. So building that launch machine of how you go from ideation to tasting the product on a kitchen basis and then scaling it up and then having an integrated launch program which covers all the channels and then managing to keep that product in stock. And basically, it's a complete multidisciplinary orchestra to make that happen. And we've been painstakingly putting that together over the last couple of years and now we're, we've got the formation that we really wanted. So I, I think you can expect to see more new ideas coming from us in the near future. In new products, new formats, so wet our taste buds for what we might be. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pick out in terms of product, the work that we've been doing with our velvetizer in-home hot chocolate machine. We've got new recipes coming there 
using, for example, peanuts, which are just ground up to be like peanut butter and then melted into chocolate. And then both of them made into light flakes that you just melt into your milk. That's something that we know is going to go particularly well in America and Japan. And you just have to look at the rise of the premium peanut butter category in the UK to see that it's not just in those countries. We're also very active on the biscuit front. And there's something about a really good biscuit that resonates with everybody. And we see that as an area that we can bring something quite exciting into the, you know, when the kind of chocolatier met the cookie baker sort of thing. And we have some concepts that are out in the market at the moment. One's called Cookie Lux, which is a pretty sort of outrageous chocolate biscuit. It's got hazelnuts and cacao nibs baked together into a crispy biscuit. And then that's enrobed in very, very thick high cocoa milk chocolate. And then on top, oh it's gosh. got a caramel chocolate seal oh my uh, God. on the top. So it's, <laughs> we want it's, it. like, it's like the most pompous chocolate biscuit on the planet. And it's phenomenally expensive to make and eye-wateringly expensive to buy as well compared to you know, an average biscuit, but it's worth it. It's absolutely delicious. Love your use of the word enrobed. Certainly, we'll all be going out to buy Hotel Chocolat, I'm sure, right now after this podcast, <laughs> ourselves included here at Serendipity Studios. Yeah, that, that's been absolutely fantastic, Angus. I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. I want to ask a, a sort of a little bonus question here. This podcast has a sort of music element, so the the Coffee Music Project will be featuring a song from a you know undiscovered artist. But I understand you, you also have a music program in terms of the Hotel Chocolat brand. You have a playlist for the stores. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. It's something we're very excited about. And it starts with the idea that chocolate is a multi-sensory thing. And one of the senses is audio. And we know that the same chocolate can taste differently depending on the type of music that you listen to. That's a fact, and the same with coffee as well. And we wanted to create the right atmosphere inside our locations. And so we teamed up with Jake Gosling, who's a really well-known producer globally and is behind big names like Ed Sheeran originally, The Libertines, Paloma Faith, etc., etc. And he very kindly puts together a playlist for us. But the focus is on new music. And what we really want to do is give the amazing wealth of up-and-coming talent, a chance to get heard. And the combination of giving these new artists a break and an opportunity and weaving that into the multi-sensory enjoyment of chocolate is something that all our team have really got behind. And it's really exciting. And so when we get together as a big national party meetup, we get some of the artists to come and play for us and that type of thing. So it's very much a long-term support program, but with a win-win for everybody. That's been absolutely fantastic, Angus. I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. We thank you, Jeffrey, for that. And thanks for just inviting me on. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please get in touch and let us know what topics are important to you so we can make this podcast more relevant to you and your business. You can follow the link in the show notes to worldcoffeeportal.com slash fifth wave. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fifth Wave podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, 
James Harper of Filter Productions and sound engineering by Chris Brister. In the spirit of the Coffee Music Project, where we highlight emerging artists, we're including here a song from the Hotel Chocolat playlist and it's Zelda May from Fergus. Happy 2021. Have a great week. And until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. Some peace in mind Some peace in mind